Good evening, everyone, and welcome to September's Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government, hosted by the Institute for Government and sponsored this month by Tableau. I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director for Data and Digital at the Institute, and it's wonderful to see so many of you this evening. I mean, I can't actually see you, but you know what I mean. Let's start, as ever, in the time-honoured Data Bytes way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first time. Welcome. This is our 13th event. 13. Unlucky for any Triskaidekaphobics who may be joining us, but incredibly lucky for the rest of you because we've got a particularly brilliant lineup for you tonight to distract you from coronavirus, the infernal market bill, and everything else. Four quick fire presentations. So quick, they're even shorter than a permanent secretary's expected tenure. And while some of our presentations may get very specific, they're in no way limited. Let's start with some housekeeping. We are on the record and are being live streamed, obviously, with the recording available afterwards. If you're on Twitter, you can get involved with hashtag IFGDataBytes and follow at IFGEvents. You can also log into YouTube and have a chat there. And you can ask questions of our speakers via Twitter and YouTube. But the best way to do it is to go to Slido. That's at bit.ly slash slidodb13. It's case sensitive, so note the capital DB. And of course, you can do that while the presentations are still going on. If you've not been before, you may be wondering, why do we organise data bytes? Well, data means lots of different things across government, and we want to bring those different data communities together. We want to show people who don't work on data what better use of data actually means in practice and could mean for them. And we want to highlight some really good things that are going on to as wide an audience as possible. That's the why, now the how. This evening, you'll be treated to four different presentations on data. Each of our speakers will have eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. You can hopefully see the countdown clock on the screen. Their presentation will then be followed by eight minutes of questions. Yes, just eight minutes, that timer again. Please do submit them for me to put to our speakers. And then we move on to the next speaker. As I mentioned, this is our 13th event. You can catch up on the previous 12, including July's administrative data bonanza on the Institute for Government website. Now, for new viewers, um, I usually try to summarise the key things that have happened since our last event in IFG charts. And obviously, the most important thing that's happened since the last event is that I've had a haircut, finally. But let's turn to government, data and digital. There were further developments over the summer with the coronavirus contact tracing app, which obviously went very well. Then there was the algorithm to decide A-level results, which also went very well. And then there was the publication of the government's response to its consultation on digital identity, which also went very well. Now, government's been keeping those of us at the IFG extremely busy by publishing more ministerial directions, the latest data on government's major projects, and the latest civil service statistics. More to come in various Whitehall Monitor reports over the next few months on those. And we've kept ourselves busy with our report with SIPFA on how prepared our public services were for coronavirus, and our report with Nesta on missing data in children's services, all available on the IFG website. But it wouldn't be a data bytes without a slew of government resignations. 
or whatever the collective noun currently is. Perhaps it's a bureaucracy of resignations or maybe a senior civil service. One of the most significant recently, of course, was Sir Mark Sedwill, who we now know has been replaced as Cabinet Secretary by Simon Case. Simon accompanied the Institute for Government on a trip to visit Governor O'Malley in Maryland a few years ago. We wrote a report called Data Driven Delivery afterwards. Simon kindly contributed a foreword or some case notes, if you prefer. Now, the Sedwell resignation is, like the fourth ever Cabinet Secretary, something of a trend. Let's have a look at what's happened to the perm sex who were in charge of major Whitehall departments at the start of this year. Nine of them are still in post. Those are the ones highlighted in blue. A couple of them, Alex Chisholm, Matthew Rycroft in purple, have moved to other perm sec posts. One of them, Melanie Dawes in light pink, has left the civil service to take another big public sector job, the head of Ofcom. But six of the permanent secretaries in post at the turn of the year have left the civil service altogether. In John Manzoni's case, that was long planned. But for the other five to leave the civil service altogether, some in particularly controversial circumstances, is extremely unusual. The big news yesterday was the departure of another perm sec, the government legal department's Jonathan Jones, longer serving than any, who resigned over the government's plans to tamper with the withdrawal agreement and break international law in a very specific and limited way. Less permanent, more impermanent secretaries. And what of ministerial resignations? We now have seven under Boris Johnson. Simon Clarke resigned yesterday as Minister for Regional Growth and Local Government for personal reasons. Gavin Williamson still hasn't resigned as Education Secretary over the A-level debacle, even though, as our director Bronwyn Maddox wrote a couple of weeks ago, he should. Here's a different version of our resignation chart. Big circles for cabinet ministers, small ones for junior ministers, political disagreements highlighted in pink. You can see just how extraordinary the May premiership was. There's still an opportunity for Williamson to salvage the reputation of Gavins everywhere and become the latest circle on the chart. That wouldn't be his first appearance. He was only the second minister to be told to go away and shut up by a prime minister outside a reshuffle since 1979 when he was sacked by Theresa May. Last but not least is perhaps the saddest resignation of the last few weeks. Yes, Palmerston, the Foreign Office chief mouser, is off to pastures new in the countryside. This mog change means that Whitehall's second longest serving chief mouser will no longer exercise a feline whip on behalf of the government, having served four different foreign secretaries as a diligent bureaucrat. On the plus side, his retirement means he's in no danger of breaking international paw. Turning to tonight's lineup, as I said, we've got a particularly great set of speakers for you tonight. First, we'll hear from Talia Baldwin, director of the Geospatial Commission, about government's geospatial strategy. Then we'll hear from Phil King from tonight's sponsor, Tableau, who'll be talking about data-driven response and recovery in government. After him, we'll have Oscar Wyatt from the Gov.uk Data Labs on how they're using natural language processing to better understand content on Gov.uk. And last but definitely not least, we have Gaia Marcus from the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport talking about the national data strategy, hot off the press and pixel, having been published today. Put Wednesday the 7th of October in your diary for what will hopefully be the next Databytes event. 
We're extremely grateful to Tableau for supporting tonight's uh, Data Bytes. We're only able to keep the series running thanks to our sponsors, so a very big thank you to Tableau. And if you'd like to join their virtuous number through su supporting a future Data Bytes, please get in touch with Pratesh. His email address is on the screen. We currently don't have a sponsor for October, so please do have a think about whether you might be able to support us. If you're doing something interesting with data in government and would like to present or know someone who should, please drop me a line. And as ever, we'll be having some virtual drinks shortly after tonight's event. You can join us via the link on the screen, bit.ly slash db13drinks, case sensitive, with the password ifgdb13, again, case sensitive. I'll put those up at the end of the event too. That's it from me. So without any further ado, we'll head to our first speaker, Talia from the Geospatial Commission. Hi, Talia. How are you? Hi, Gavin. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for inviting me to speak. Our pleasure. Um, take it away. Thanks very much. I'm just going to share my screen with everybody. Um, I'm going to give you a very short overview of um, what the Geospatial Commission is and how we set up the UK's geospatial strategy. I'm going to pick out a few key initiatives that we're leading at the moment and give you some idea about next steps and then hopefully we'll set up an interesting Q&A in the following eight minutes. So what's the Geospatial Commission? Um, we're, we've been set up in response to an abundance of data and advancing technology that supports an emerging geospatial data opportunity, not just for the UK but for uh, other countries and globally. Improved technologies have allowed for better data collection and storage and use, particularly of geospatial data. There's an increased awareness, correspondingly, of the value of location data, in particular uh, with regard to uh, COVID-19, the response that the government's been managing here uh, and globally. We can see the value of improved access to location data and the widespread uses of this. And Accompanying this, geospatial data is seen as a component technology rather than a niche or separate sector with regards to how businesses think more broadly about how to embed skills and capabilities, but also organisational perspective uh, into their own priorities. We're also here to have a look at whether the public sector can perform better with regards to location data. There's lots of legacy platforms that have been around for a while and they don't best support access to location data and other linked data. So we're having a look at that. We've set up as an expert committee in the Cabinet Office. We're relatively bespoke in design. We're chaired by Sir Andrew Dilnot um, and he heads our independent board of commissioners and I lead a group of uh, experts with different capabilities that are embedded proper in the Cabinet Office. We've been given some key levers. We manage key geospatial data contracts across the public sector, which include um, 5,000 organisational um, uh, access by the public sector to ordnance surveys data sets. We are formally linked with key geospatial data agencies, six in particular across the public sector, and I'll go into it more detail later on about what we do with those agencies. We also work in collaboration with several Whitehall partners and departments and with the private sector as well. And we run a bunch of data improvement programs and focus on policy initiatives. I'm just gonna give you a very brief overview of the geospatial strategy that we published in June. We have committed to providing for a coherent location data framework for the UK by 2025 singling out nine location data opportunities that are fairly broad and range from infrastructure to environmental data, marine data, financial services, 
areas where we've identified there's great value in better access to location data. The strategy focuses on four key missions to realize better action, access to location data across a range of different initiatives. And these form the blueprint for the activities that we're leading. So I'm just gonna take a couple of minutes to tell you about some of these key activities, but there are a range that the strategy also touches on um, that we can maybe pick up later in Q&A. The first of the key initiatives is our National Underground Assets Register Programme. We've identified that there is a benefit improved efficiency and access to underground assets data. The primary use case for us is to support safe digging uh, and, and manage utility strikes. We've run a couple of projects in London and the Northeast to prove some assumptions about how best to run a national program. And this year we're undergoing the prep stage to explore how best we should manage a national rollout and with who. The case for change we think is um, clear. There's plenty of information about how utilities assets are accessed at the moment and mainly paper-based. The pipes and cables under our feet are a complexity of different uh, subsystems. And the 700 asset owners that are, set, that are uh, peppered throughout the UK uh, all have different systems for accessing this data. To run the pilots in the northeast and London, we've worked with a range of different partners, both public and private sector based. And we hope that this collaborative effort will be able to continue as we roll out to a national programme. The second programme I'm just going to briefly touch on because it's very different from the National Underground Assets Register is the market study. So we're doing a bit of evidence gathering with Frontier Economics at the moment just to look at where the future value for the use of location data might be and in what sectors. We're aiming to publish a study um, in uh, possibly by the end of this year, hopefully by the end of this year. And here's a sneak peek at early conclusions. We are probably going to identify that geospatial data is not just a market, but an ecosystem. Its value is growing, but not just in particular sector or the geospatial sector, but because data is aggregated into other companies. Despite this, there's a high degree of innovation in the geospatial sector itself in the UK, which has grown quite uh, significantly over the last few years, although this is a very small sample size. And we're also really interested in clarifying the public sector's place in the ecosystem as the market adapts to bring forward some key initiatives that the public sector has previously provided. So we'll give you some more information about that hopefully by the end of the year. The other set of initiatives that we're mainly running are around public sector data improvement. There are a range of these and they include the public sector geospatial agreement, which is a contract with ordnance survey that we hold on behalf of the public sector. It allows different public sector entities to access ordnance surveys data and the contract provides for upgrading this data and more of it. We also hold a contract with a range of private sector providers to allow the public sector to access aerial imagery data. We are running a series of programs to improve location data, foundational location data, linked to the six agencies that we're working with. 
Um, and those are Ordnance Survey, the Land Registry, the British Geological Survey, the Coal Authority, the Valuation Office Agency, and the UK Hydrographic Office. With our six partners, we have run a series of programs and are exploring whether we focus on different initiatives in future, including archive data capture and coastal zone mapping. We've also mandated uh, a common standard across the public sector to access UPRNs and USRNs um, and provided those free to access for everybody under open government license. So what next? The strategy outlines a range of different initiatives that we'll be stepping up this year and next year. They include more data improvement programs focused on sector specific use cases around housing data, transport data and land use. There are a range of policy priorities that the strategy commits to um, around clarity for frameworks that support safe and ethical use of location data. We will also establish a skills forum that we're hoping to run um, and our website provides more information about that. And we are looking at new initiatives as well, including how we can best export the UK's international capability. So we're very happy to speak to anybody that wants to work with us in future. There are numerous ways to get in touch with us. I'm going to stop presenting that. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Talia. Um, so just a reminder before we go to Q&A with Talia that you can submit questions for me to put to her and to all of our other speakers. The easiest way to do that is to go to bit.ly slash Slido DB13 capital S capital DB. Um, thank you very much for that um, introduction. Um, I'm actually going to, I think some of these questions, lots of questions being asked um, for the national data strategy later, but actually quite a few of them are really relevant um, to, to what you've been talking about as well and, and government's geospatial strategy. Um, namely, how will the geospatial strategy interact with the national data strategy, with the uh, national infrastructure strategy, and how, how do all of these things fit together? Um, yes, thanks. So the uh, the national data strategy provides the government's policy framework for for data. So the geospatial strategy is um, is complementary to this. It aligns with it. It actually it, it takes out a. Um, an area of activity that the government's identified as high value and high priority and creates a framework for delivering value to this. And so the National Data Strategy mentions a couple of geospatial initi initiatives and we've been talking with colleagues about that, but the National Data Strategy is much broader uh, than the geospatial strategy for the UK. Um, and we also have a series of priorities that the geospatial, um, that the National Data Strategy might not yet pay close attention to. Excellent, thank you. Now, um, I've got a couple of questions already. I'm going to go with the technical one that somebody's asked first, um, which is, can you tell us what UPRNs and USRNs are that we saw on your slides? Yes, yeah, sorry. So this is a bit of technical detail. I, I tried to get rid of that <laughs> presentation. Um, they are a unique property reference number and unique, unique street reference number. They're the... Uh, there, that's what that they are. They're a reference number that creates the golden thread that links together lots of different information about uh, street and property data. Um, so when different bits of the public sector are trying to identify areas, they can use this reference number in order to kind of then uh, link together postcode data, location data, where people are, where people are property extents, that kind of thing. 
everything and non-location data as well. Excellent. Probably the, the most important numbers that some people may not have heard of, probably. Um, so we've got a question from my uh, former colleague, Martin Wheatley. Um, how far is linking social and economic data to place part of your agenda, relevant, for example, to the government's levelling up ambitions? Yeah, actually, that's, there's, a, there's a lot in that question. So the, the strategy uh, focuses on prioritising ways to improve access to data that support economic value, but also social and environmental value. So we are not um, just focusing our priorities on areas of activity that uh, that boost that obviously boost the UK's economy. So you can imagine that geospatial data is really helpful. I mentioned before, but in managing the COVID-19 pandemic, but on a more long-term basis, environmental impacts, uh, the way that people interact with each other when local authorities are planning uh, their, their cities and towns and that kind of thing. Um, uh, I think there's a there's a there's a different question about whether uh, there are uh, there are more social uses or access to geospatial data through kind of more uh, um, social uses. So, for example, um, if I'm understanding the question correctly, the actually we've done a bit of work on different ways that uh, geospatial data can be collected to be used by people in local areas through crowdsourcing, for example. And there's lots of different forums that we've seen, regional forums that use uh, mapping data, foundational location data to kind of set up different initiatives that the community wants to focus on. And so we're keen that we set a framework for better access to that so those things can just go ahead. Excellent. Um, you were talking a bit there about access uh, to data. We've got a question from Jeremy. Um, I think it's probably one that you'll have heard uh, a lot in the sort of geospatial data field. Um, please, can you tell me if you intend to deliver any data as open data? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, we have thought really carefully about it. Actually, the strategy captures uh, a quite high, quite a high level view from our perspective about uh, the, the merits of open data versus other kinds of access to data that wouldn't be provided if we just opened it. Um, and so, for example, uh, the, one of the first initiatives that we uh, that we have run uh, has included uh, reforming access to ordnance surveys data through the new public sector geospatial agreement, which included um, open access to components of what would otherwise have been paid for uh, of that data through open master map programs. So businesses should be able to access data free up to a threshold and they wouldn't they weren't able to do that before. Um, I mentioned underground assets in the presentation as well and this is a good example of where you can imagine that, uh, so the private sector hold this data, the government isn't going to mandate that the private sector makes this data freely available. However, we would like it to be available for particular use cases. And therefore we need to work out how best to do that, uh, including whether there are significant things like security concerns, commercial concerns about making access to that data available, privacy concerns in relation to other kinds of use cases. So uh, I think uh, we definitely support open data uh, and think it can um, help build a lot of economic activity, including innovation across different sectors. However, there are some uh, initiatives that probably don't lend themselves to that very well, in particular, including access to private sector data. Great, thank you. And um, we've got about two and a half minutes left, so there's still a bit of time for people to put in questions via Twitter, YouTube and Slido. Well, there are plenty on Slido already. So the next one is from Anonymous. 
Hello to you, Anonymous. Um, please, could you tell us more about the Geospatial Commission's work on land use data? Um, yes, uh, I, I think we'll be able to say more um, uh, in, a, in a few months. We This is one of the components of the strategy that we've outlined um, in order to make people aware that we're really interested in this area. Uh, it's a really broad topic area, actually, and there's lots of people in government doing interesting things and asking interesting questions. So we're talking to different government departments, including uh, DEFRA, MHCLG, Bays about land use. Um, we, uh, we'd like to talk of anyone who's interested in particular uh, areas that we can focus on. We've done a fair bit already on housing data. Uh, actually, we've published some data that is uh, owned in other parts of the public sector in an attempt to identify which data could be improved, for example. But we're aware that uh, not only is there cross interest uh, in bits of the public sector about land use, but there are a range of different things that we could choose to uh, focus on as our priority. Excellent. Um, and anyone interested in, in sort of digital land and land use data, uh, Paul Maltby, our very first Data Bytes event, and Natalie Record back in June, I think, uh, have also discussed that as well. So, so do check out our archive. Um, we've got a very specific question from Sam Smith. Um, he says priority post boxes have 4pm collections to allow COVID tests um, to be posted back. Um, and NHS and the rest of the government have done lots of data on data work during COVID. He's wondering why is there no open data a list of where those post boxes might be? Um, so I, I don't know. Uh, there, there are reasons why there's no, uh, why data isn't freely available. It might be that uh, it just isn't, hasn't been a consideration if it's a, if it's a new data, that, a set of data that's been established. Um, and uh, I would imagine that might be the case, but honestly, I, I don't know the answer to that particular question. No problem. And I'm going to squeeze a final one in from Santanu Ray. Can researchers access geospatial data for scientific and statistical analysis? Uh, yes, they, uh, Ordnance Survey run actually um, uh, a range of programmes where they link into different academic institutions, but uh, there's quite a lot of academic institutions across the UK that support uh, geospatial analysis and research. Um, and we're talking to uh, others in the public sector, including the ONS, uh, the Turing Institute a little bit as well, uh, about whether there is benefit in having a, a more formal and collective network that links together researchers. Um, the public sector has lots of different research institutions that we're talking to, uh, including around health data at the moment. And so um, we have established a skills forum and I think that's the, probably the best way to link in uh, to us if you have any thoughts or ideas about opportunities for access or priorities around research data and academic uh, institutions and what the geospatial priority should be uh, from a strategic perspective. Brilliant. Well, Talia, thank you for a whistle-stop tour through a huge subject and lots of work that you've got going on. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thanks very much. Uh, we'll be going very shortly now to our next speaker, which is Phil from Tableau. Um, and just a quick apology if I dropped out during my introduction. I'm sure you'd be delighted to have been spared some of the jokes, but they will be back in on the edit so you don't escape that easily. Um, Phil, can you hear me? Uh, good evening, Gavin. Yes, I can. Thank Brilliant. you. Thank and you uh, much, let me Phil. just say that I'm, uh, we're very pleased to be sponsoring today's event. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an honour and a privilege, sir. Well, thank you very much indeed. And um, on that note, I shall hand over to you to present.
Okay, let me just share my screen. Let me get it to the right area. Uh, here we go. All right. Good evening, everybody. And I'm the business development director for the public sector at Tableau. Uh, and my challenge for the next uh, seven and a bit minutes is to talk about data driven response and recovery in government. Uh, the agenda I'm going to go through is I'll give you a brief introduction to uh, Tableau. Um, I'm going to talk about how in crisis we've turned to data. Uh, I'm also going to take a challenge and uh, do some demonstrations of the technology. And at the end, I've got an open invitation for you. So a little bit about Tableau. Um, we are a Salesforce company. As of the uh, 1st of April, we are part of Salesforce. Uh, but our mission as an organization is we help people see and understand data. Uh, and by that, I mean, we, we democratize data. So we like everybody within an organization to have access to the data that they need for, for to fulfill their role. As one of uh, our clients put it, uh, a little data in a lot of people's hands is better than a lot of data in a few people's hands. Um, in terms of where we are, uh, I, I thought I'd stick up the old Gartner Magic Quadrant. Um, we've always been, ever since our inception, either number one or two in this Gartner top right-hand corner. And I want to bring some things to your attention. You know. It, Gone talk about us providing analytics to an entire organization across departments and all skill levels. So that goes back to our capability to, for everybody within an organization to use uh, Tableau. It also talks about this unparalleled community and that we have what Gartner referred to as a fan base. And I'll show you a bit about that community later. Uh, and we have a really significant platform. And I'm going to show you something which is here called Ask Data which is a way to gain access to data without actually having to understand the underlying uh, metrics so that you can really make sense of uh, some complex questions. Uh, but the main thing is Tableau's ease of use. And uh, Tableau is, is world-renowned for, uh, for being easy to use for all types of users. Uh, but in crisis, we do turn to data. And I'm sure you remember back uh, in the middle of March, the uh, the old uh, sombrero flattening the sombrero and the Downing Street briefings, but we and the uh, you know the, the the cabinet and the public expected a lot more information very quickly, and so the cabinet office and Cobra turned to Tableau to help them with this. And I'm sure you'll recognise some of these screens that uh, that were on the five o'clock briefings. In fact, some of them have been on the briefings this afternoon, uh, and you will see that uh, you know. This was deployed, uh, this solution, uh, with our partners AWS in over in terms of the infrastructure and implementation and over, over just one weekend. And we had uh, the first uh, the first of these uh, visualizations up and working within a week. So really quick from inception to fulfillment. And the other area I turn to if I want to understand about data is I always look at the BBC for, for views on, on their analysis. And again, the BBC data sciences team uh, used Tableau uh, for, for their uh, information. And again, you'll have seen that uh, on, on all the BBC reporting. So now I'm going to go into some uh, demonstrations. I'll start to show you about Ask Data. I'm going to show you an NHS digital dashboard that's built on Tableau. And I'm going to show you something around the Tableau community. So I'm just going to switch across to uh, 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 a, a website. Now you can see here at the top, 
left-hand corner. This is about crimes in the Thames Valley, and there's lots of information here, lots of different fields. But as a user, I don't have to do anything about that. I can just type in here, crimes by crime type. Excuse my slow typing. Oh, I might have to do it again. And you see that without having to understand any of these fields, it's come back with a view uh, and a visualization on the different crimes. Now, I'll just, I'll just pick out one thing so you see this is going to change. I've got bicycle theft down here, and I want to know about the whole of the Thames Valley, so I'm just going to say, well, what about for Oxford? Again, you'll see that it's automatically made the change. I haven't got to know where the data's held, but you'll see that the bicycle theft, just to show that it's changed, has moved up here, not surprisingly, for Oxford. Now, I'm just going to save that very quickly because I want to understand a little bit more about, uh, about that those crimes. So I'm going to save that and call it Oxford's crime set. Or why is it slowed down when you don't want it to? And then I'm just going to edit it very quickly. So if I look at this, and I click on the top line, it's like that's a really big line, right? And I'm going to run a bit of analysis on it. So I just click on my light bulb and it says uh, the number of crimes is higher than expected. Perhaps it's because the outcome type here is it's unable to prosecute the suspect. So if I quickly look down here and find outcome type, I drop it onto color and you see that immediately it's pulled up some information around uh, here and indeed there are a number of unable to prosecute suspects but I haven't really had to do very much just some drag and drop work so I'm just quickly going to pop onto an NHS digital site uh, here you can see is a progression dashboard this is very very relevant at the moment because this is this is what the government have been using and you can see that uh, this is NHS digital and along here we've got uh, the COVID cases, where we are, uh, and I particularly want to bring your eyes down to a couple of points. One, wider reopening, and you can see how this has increased the number of cases, and something that's really been important for a lot of people is the case rate per 100,000. So if I click on that, you can see, not surprisingly, that Bolton that's just gone into lockdown is, is there. Now, quickly, um, I'm going to pop over to... Uh, show you a little bit about our community this community on something called tableau public and uh and we've got um a, a view from our community and they've generated 28,321 different visualizations around covid and these are all accessible via that tableau public site so i'll just quickly pop across back to my uh presentation so but we're not just looking at how we've done things in the uh, in the in the past. We're also looking at uh, and working with customers on how they can reshape and recover, deal with the new way of working, and how they can move forward and become a data-driven department. Here's the team. So uh, I'm down here at the right right-hand side. Just contact me on phking at tableau.com, and I have an open invitation to our Tableau conference. It's free. Uh, it's virtual. 
uh, it's opened uh, October the 7th to the 9th and you can register at tableau.com forward slash conference. And that's me. Thanks very much. And that was perfectly to time, I think, as well. Thank you very much, Phil. Um, just a reminder to everybody watching uh, that you can put your questions to Phil, either via Twitter, via the YouTube chat, or, of course, our favoured way, Slido, bit.ly slash DB 13 um, So while we wait for all of those questions to start coming in, um, one from me to kick off. Um, how, do you, how do you sort of go about working with government? I mean, how, how does that differ from uh, working with other 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 organisations, um, and do you uh, want to just uh, quit your screen share very quickly as well, Phil? Sorry, yeah, of that's course. all right. No problem. Is that better? We back? We are indeed perfect. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, actually, in some respects, it, it's not much different to any other sector, um, uh, and I think particularly as we've seen through uh, uh, through COVID, that that's become even even more the same as the as, as the private sector. Um, we've had a much greater drive. Uh, we've had a much uh, uh, a much greater request from organisations to actually help them with digital transformation, which has kind of been lagging and been something that government agenda for a long, long time. But this move and, and the unfortunate pandemic has meant that organisations having to move to that in a, in a much quicker way. Uh, I think the other thing to to kind of points out from that though, Gavin, is that, is that um, the, the new way of working as well has meant that other people within the organisations, whether public or private sector, are actually having to A, get access to data, but also being asked about the issues that they're facing in terms of that they're being asked, what, what do you need and how can you provide this information? Because we're being asked questions that we've never been asked before. And I don't know about you, but this is my first pandemic. So, you know, it's 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 I think it's common across both, I have to say. And you feel like it's sort of unblocked lots of barriers to people working with data as a result? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think it has. And I think it's uh, and particularly with a lot more remote working, whereas people might have shown you a report on a bit of paper, you know, a lot more is having to be done virtually with real live information. And I think the other thing is people need real real-time information, not information that was yesterday, which which were or a week ago or a report that was generated perhaps ten days ago. You know, so I think we see a lot more of that as well. Excellent. I'm going to go to some of the questions that we've got on Slido. There has been a bit of a gender imbalance tonight. It must be said um, with with questions. Please do keep asking. Um, I'm going to go to um, so John C was the first uh, question. Uh, he says the challenge. It's a challenge from somebody who's a heavy Tableau user. Um, how do you show the use cases that aren't delivered by other sort of alternative software? Um, otherwise, for instance, Microsoft might be seen as the default in government ICT procurement. How do you sort of get around that? What 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 are the unique use cases? Yeah, I I, I think that's a very good question. Um, a, a lot of people do default to Microsoft because of you know existing contracts, for example. If I'm honest, I have to say, put the, put the tools in the user's hands. We are you know if people use use Tableau, they absolutely love it, uh, and we are quite open to running uh, pilots, open cases, doing uh, doing uh, joint projects together. 
to to really show the power of the, of, of Tableau. And it's the usage that blows people away. And I think it's the speed to actually get to the point of having uh, insight into the, into data. Uh, for example, the NHS digital um, uh, product I showed, not actually that one, the one that they did on triage, they built in a week, you know, from, from con conceptual. And I mean, installed the software, um, got the servers up and running, and then had a beta test of the product within a week. So that speed to value and speed to insight is again, something that's really, really impressed me. I've been in Tableau six months and it's not absolutely not my socks off. Excellent. Um, we've got a question from Leo, uh, brackets C19 Task Force. Hello, Leo, C19 Task Force. Um, is the BBC Tableau guide open to use? Otherwise, what's the best guide for Tableau beginners? Um, you can have you can have training on Tableau. You can go and go. If you look at the Tableau public website, just go in uh, w. You know, just search for it on Google. Uh, you can get a free trial of Tableau. You can do it. There's lots of online training on Tableau. Lots of YouTube on Tableau, and you can look at some of those visualizations, and you can see the kind of thing that's been done. Obviously, I showed COVID, but there are some fun things on there like. You know who's been the top World Cup scorer? Stats on the Premier League, whole heaps of stuff. I just showed the COVID one as an example, but there are many things. Uh, and and if if uh, that person wants to contact me, I'm sure we can discuss that uh, again and and point them in the right direction. Excellent. Uh, just a reminder to everybody watching, we've got about three minutes left, so please do um, put your questions via Slido, Twitter or YouTube, and I'll put them to Phil. Um, I'm going to ask another question. There are a few others uh, coming up, but I'm, I'm going to ask them first, which is, um, you sort of talked a lot about the, the community, and you know, anybody who's been on Twitter will see you know, there's a huge Tableau community around. Um, you were showing us how much they've been doing around coronavirus. How has that sort of work fed into your government work? Has you know interesting things that people might have been trying? Has governments only realised actually that might be a better way of visualising something or doing something? How was that sort of interaction? Yeah, it's it, uh, again very good question, Gavin. <laughs> it's um, I, I think uh, it's actually one of the challenges we have with with customers, uh, and it's one of the challenges we had around the COBRA reports in, in terms of saying you know this is the best way to visualise this particular bit of data and you get into a very strong debate with people around some of that sometimes uh, and some and sometimes the best way is to kind of show what it could look like in a in what we would see as as a best use case um, there are also when, when you're putting things out to a large audience particularly if it's a public facing website there's also other issues around things like accessibility colorblind and, and again we've got a lot of uh um, uh, guidance on that for, for our customers uh, and clients to follow. And again, some of the best ways to show that is to use those visualizations from our, from our community to show what good would and could look like. And it also brings up new ideas that perhaps you haven't even thought about. So again, it's a great community to use and we use it a lot, as do our customers. Excellent. Um... So we've got um, a couple of some quite technical questions around data oh. in SPC format. So Alan well, Leakings, for don't, instance. Don't ask, can, I, can I put my hand up to not answering <laughs> technical questions? If people want to ask technical questions, I'm quite happy to take them offline, but I'm not a technical guru. Excellent. Well, they're all on Slido, so I'm sure we'll be able to find a way of, uh, of coming up with answers to them. Um, so one uh, 
question is, do you see Jupiter notebooks as a competitor as well? Um, we don't come across them that much. Uh, I mean, we, we, we come across the names that you'll always, you, you'll probably all you'll recognise. We come across uh, uh, Click quite a lot. Uh, we, we obviously come across uh, Microsoft quite a lot. Uh, Palantir in some spaces, um, you know. So, so you know, we, we, there, there, are, there are a number in that area, but we don't really see Jupiter come up, uh, very much in our in our space in particular. Great. I'm going to squeeze in a final question in the oh. 30 seconds that are left. Um, you were sort of talking about um, the growth of real time data that you're able to sort of use in, in Tableau. Do you see that there are, are there risks? Do you think to to that becoming more and more common as well as opportunities? Um, well, I think the only risk risk to it is is to make sure that the quality of data is is good enough in in from the start. I mean, if you if you think particularly around um, the ONS stats on on COVID compared to uh, the the Cobra uh, kind of statistics, they they were different. Uh, they were showing basically the same thing, but there was different data sources in a different way. So. Um, like like all good things, the data that's reported is only as good as the data that's put into it, and therefore the the only challenge you have with with real time data is to make sure it is good real time data. Excellent, a perfect note on which to end. Phil, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Uh, next, we have our third speaker. Uh, that's Oscar from uh, Gov.uk Data Labs. Hello, Oscar. Hi. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Um, I'll see. I will. I will hand over to you. I'll see if I can share my screen successfully. Okay, I believe you should be able to see that. Uh, I'll take silences. Yes. Um, hi. So I'm Oscar White. I'm a developer on Gov.uk Data Labs, and I'm going to be talking about how we're building a deeper understanding of Gov.uk content with natural language processing, or NLP. UK, our long-term strategy is around users, and there are three strands to achieving this. One is making things personalized, which means giving users the options to interact with more curated products that meets and anticipates their needs and helps do some tasks for them. Two, low friction, joining up complex information and services beneath the surface and making it easier for users to get things right from the start. And number three, data informed, harnessing the power of data to have better performance insights across government. And today I'm going to be talking about some of the work that we've been doing on the third part of this as data labs and how it can help all three parts. So gov.uk has a problem in that we have over half a million pages and it contains an awful lot of information that can be related to many, many life circumstances and problems that people or organizations may face. And we have a lot of really wonderful content designers who think long and hard about how we present that information to make it as simple and as relevant and as relevant as possible. And they do an amazing job. But understanding that information first requires finding it, which with half a million pages can be really hard and you can't just read the whole website. So we're working on solving that problem by answering to all three strands of the wider strategy. So our solution is using natural language processing, or NLP, to automatically analyze content, to enrich it with further information that computers can make sense of and can deal with. And when we've done that, we can build tools and services that can really help our users. 
And the, the foundations of this lie in named entity recognition, or NER. Um, and then for those of you who may not be so familiar with natural named entity recognition, it's systems that can understand that words or combinations of words can refer to real world things so, uh, that we call entities. So for example, the words universal credit refer to something. It's a social, social security payment. And there are lots of named entity recognition systems out there, but none of them are trained on government terms or government words. So they actually perform quite poorly on a content. So we had to train a system ourselves and we called it governor. Sorry about that. Um, and it can recognize government entities in text with a 99% accuracy. And this is a screenshot of the system that we used to train governor. Highlighted words that you can see there are, are words that it thinks are entities and they're color coded according to what kind of entity it is. And that might not sound like much, but we can do an awful lot with it. One of those is eligibility. So this is the eligibility section of the gov.uk page for universal credit. And there are a lot of pages like this on gov.uk. And by reading this, you'll be able to understand whether or not you can get universal credit. But when you've understood whether or not you can get universal credit, you'd have to repeat a similar process for any other welfare payments that you think you might be eligible for, which can be quite time consuming. And furthermore, users may not be fully aware of what they could be eligible for and might miss out on things that they just don't know about. So we want to save users this time and ensure that they can get what they're eligible for. So in Data Labs, we're using Governor and some other NLP tools to build a system that can automatically analyze these pages, extract the eligibility information, and restructure it in a format that makes it really simple for computers to query. Uh, so this is a screenshot of a prototype service that we're working on where users will be able to enter some simple details about their personal situation, such as their age or employment status. And when we've done that, we can actually show them a list of what they might be eligible for, which is much lower friction. It's saving people valuable time and effort reading lots of pages. But it's also it's personalized. It's, it's recommending things based on a, a user's unique circumstances and ensuring that they can't miss out on things that they just don't know about. We're also using NLP to augment our knowledge graph. In Data Labs, we've been pro developing a knowledge graph, uh, which contains a lot of information about pages on gov.uk. And we're planning on augmenting that with lots of extra information about those pages, such as entities that a page mentions, green circles here, eligibility criteria contains purple circles, and a lot more knowledge that can be extracted from these pages or pulled from other sources. And with this, we can build tools that understand a great deal more about pages, what, are, what pages are about, the information within them, and the world at large. And we can use, we can use this for a lot of things. For example, uh, to improve search. So the, if the two nodes that represent Boris Johnson and Prime Minister are linked, then someone searching for the word Boris Johnson will also see more results about the Prime Minister that don't mention the words Boris Johnson because it knows that the two things are related. So if it sees Boris Johnson in a page, then people might also wanna know about Prime Minister. We can also use it to make personalized recommendations for content that might be useful to people based on what pages they've been looking at. So for example, if someone has been looking at pages about child tax credit, we might want to show them other benefits that are relevant to people who are looking after children, such as 30 hours free childcare, even though they may not contain the same exactly the same words. We can also use it to serve up rich snippets and search results, telling people the answer to a question, such as who is the prime minister or can an 18 year old get universal credit? And that's really exciting. 
We're also using NLP to understand feedback. Uh, there are lots of ways for users to give feedback on gov.uk, and as you might imagine, uh, the quantity of feedback we've been getting has, been, has increased massively since the coronavirus pandemic and lockdown began, and we're getting thousands and thousands of pieces of feedback a day. Some of that is quantitative, and it can be quite easily analysed, and it's quite easy to extract some really useful stuff with. But the really, really valuable information that helps us understand our users on a human level is quantitative. But there's far too much to read and understand manually, especially on a daily basis. So in Data Labs, we've been working on tools to classify and assign labels to that feedback so we can get an understanding of how many people are saying a certain kind of thing or having a particular problem without having to read it all. And this means we can also analyze changes to feedback over time so we can understand whether changes we've made have reduced the amount of feedback with a particular problem, perhaps suggesting that our changes have helped people with that problem. And we're also working on trending systems to help us understand new areas of feedback as they arise because the world changes. So we'll be able to know when a new user need is arising and we can proactively help to meet that need very quickly. So at Data Labs, uh, we're showing, we have shown uh, that natural language processing can help gov.uk meet its strategy and help us solve some really difficult problems and make some big changes. We're helping make things personalized, telling users what they need to know based on what they're willing to tell us about their personal situation. We're making it low friction, saving users time and radically changing how they find information. And it's data informed. We're, we're harnessing the power of data and feedback to help us get insights into what problems people are having, automatically finding out when they have new problems and being able to understand whether or not problems have been fixed. And I, for one, am really excited about all this. Uh, I hope you found it interesting than I do. Um, that's all from me. Thank you very much. Oscar, thank you very much indeed. And uh, I can already tell lots of our viewers are excited because we're starting to get questions in already. Um, so I'm going to start with um, a question uh, from Catherine Hope. Although before I do that, just to remind everybody, please do give me your questions for me to put to Oscar. You can do so via Twitter, via the chat on YouTube, or of course via bit.ly slash slidodb13. So our first question uh, is from Catherine Hope. How are you feeding policy knowledge into this? For example, uh, the example she gives is that people should not apply for universal credit if they're on tax credit. So how, how do you make sure that sort of policy knowledge tries to avoid some of those things? Well, um, the simple answer is at the moment we're not. Um, we, that would be a really exciting thing to, to look into in the future. Um, at the moment, things are, are the very earlier stages. So it's, it's at a prototype stage. We're focusing on the really easy things. Um, we've talked to lots of people across government about things they've done or things they are doing. Um, and so there's, there's all sorts of interesting work people have done about modern legislation, uh, which is, is technically different from policy. But, um, that is, is may well be something that we come to down the road. Um, and there's a huge amount of potential, um, but it's not something that I've dedicated any thought to uh, as much as I would love to. Thanks. Um, so this one is from Mary Susan, and you sort of touched on search um, a little bit uh, during your presentation. Uh, her question is, why does the search function on gov.uk not perform as would be expected? Will your activity finally break the assumption that uh, access is best via Google? Um, well, um, the, the, so there's two parts of the question. Why is, why is it not performing as, as they're expecting? Um, so. I wouldn't dare to, uh, to say anything 
uh, criticizing a product. A lot of people do really hard work. So I think part of the problem is that there is there is an awful lot of content. Uh, we're not Google. We are a really small um, organization, and we're trying our best. We think that with the things that we're looking at, and, and they are just thoughts at the moment, we're going to be working on this quite soon. Um, but we, we think that because with a greater understanding of content, and with a greater understanding of how the world works, we have to train models uh, that can understand that, for example, Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister, and therefore people searching for Boris Johnson want to see pages about the Prime Minister because in their mind, uh, they're the same thing. Um, but at the moment, our search doesn't know that. So uh, we'll be teach as we sort of teach it about the world. Um, it'll be able to learn more. It'll be able to it'll know more, and therefore it'll be able to help better. Um, and I've forgotten the second part of the question. Um, yeah. um, so it was um, sort of uh, yeah, re replacing Google is the best way to sort of access uh, UK yeah. and it was um, why the search function might not perform as you would expect. Yeah. That was the yeah. In terms of replacing Google, um, that's a much wider question that I, I sort of can't really talk about because it, it goes beyond my immediate work, which is just in data labs. But um, I, I think, you know, in terms of search, we're never going to beat Google. I think that's a completely realistic thing to say, and it's not controversial. Um, in terms of helping users with government things, that is something that in time that we, we could do much better. So, so for example, the the service, the mock-up that I showed of our prototype service to tell people what they might be eligible for, that's something that Google is never probably going to find, um, I, you know, I can't speak about their corporate objectives, but they're, they're unlikely to find that a, a profitable thing to spend their time on. Um, but it's something that we can do to really help people because we're not, um, because that's, that's part of our job. Excellent. So the questions are coming thick and fast, so I'll get straight back to them. Um, Jeremy's asking, was the NLP work done with academic collaboration? Um, no, it hasn't been. Um, we're a small team and we're sort of proving the value at the moment. So a lot of it's quite experimental. A lot of it is um, uh, trying things out and proving the value. And, and I think I think we'd be, we'd be really interested in, in expanding out. I know some people in my team have spoken to academics and are, are reaching out more proactively. Um, but... Uh, absolutely, um, I am sure we can share our, our uh, email address after this and anyone who's interested, we'd, we'd love to speak to um, and find out what they're up to and, and have them to help us. Excellent. Um, on the subject of collaboration, we've got another question from Mary Susan. This one is about how much collaboration is taking place between your activity and user researchers. Um, so uh, so there's, there's sort of several parts to that. So in terms of like we have a lot of ideas in data science and we, we, we love exploring things and trying things out. Some of that never gets beyond spending a couple of days with a problem. Uh, some of that we, you know, we think this is, this is going to turn into something and it gets that momentum behind it. So, so the prototype I showed you, that hasn't had any user uh, researchers on it, uh, but we work with user researchers. I love working with user researchers. They're amazing people and they do amazing work. Um, and certainly by the time anything was trialed live on the website, nothing I've shown you is live on the website, um, we'd, you know, we, we'd, we'd be getting user researchers involved and, and, and you know, trying it on real people and, and getting their amazing uh, insights and feedback. But, but certainly nothing that I've ever, uh, would ever do would, would you know, hopefully see the light of day without having a lot of input from user researchers. 
Excellent. Um, we've got about three minutes left, so there are, there's still more time for questions, but I've got plenty to go through already. Uh, so two linked ones, I suppose. Um, so Catherine Hope again, using just the behaviour data on gov.uk to suggest pages will could embed the difficult journeys they're currently going through. How will you avoid that? And the very similar question uh, from Anonymous is, where are the humans in the loop? How do you guard against that inference explosion, as they describe it? Yeah, so obviously that's a a really interesting and difficult problem um, and that's I think why we're so keen on using natural language processing because it, it's not so much centered around what people have clicked on because sometimes people click on something because they think oh that's interesting but it's not actually relevant to what they're reading and that's why clickbait works um, so um, so that's kind of that that is sort of part of the answer is that we're, we're going we hope to be able to teach computers to know that two things are related because they include similar language rather than someone's clicked on something. We do use those systems um, and sometimes we do have to manually correct for them. Um, uh, in terms of, um, uh, I forgot what the second question was. Um, uh, the inference explosion. The inference explosion, yeah. And, and that, that I guess that's tied up with it. the other thing really is, is, is because if we're using gov.uk content as a trusted source that's written by, you know, um, civil servants, it's we can trust that. And that's why we try to use that for everything as much as possible and not and try to limit how much it's based on user interactions. Um, and we're also thinking, we are thinking long term about how is this going to work? Um, when, if, and when this is in production. And we think that some of that might involve just asking people to manually check things occasionally. Um, yeah. Great. Uh, we've got just over a minute left. So apologies to those people whose questions I'm not going to have time to ask. There are lots of great questions. And um, I'm going to try to sort of squeeze two more in. And um, the first from Anonymous uh, is what training data are you using for the NLP? And also from Anonymous, possibly a different Anonymous, is the target model published anywhere? Um, so in terms of training data, so uh, with, with Governor, we had to train that ourselves, which was, uh, so we got a lot of input from lots of people gov.uk uh, and we can't thank these people enough um because they basically had to look at a sentence that had been tagged and correct it and tell it and tag new things and say this is it so um and that was quite time consuming but the, the great thing about that is it's a gold standard it's been done by lots of people in-house who we can trust um and um so it performs really well and and we know that no one's done anything malicious there um and the second question in terms of, and oh, I've forgotten the second question again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the second question was target model. Target model. Um, so we haven't published, oh, off the top of my head, I don't think we've published it. Um, obviously, we do work in the open wherever possible, I, but I think it's something we would be looking to do. Um, so watch this space and possibly get in touch. Um, but I can't actually remember off the top of my head. No problem. Well, we might have to have you back again at some point to update us on how it's all going. <laughs> Lots of uh, questions that I didn't have time to ask, but Oscar, that was fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Kevin. And last but definitely not least um, is our final presentation of this evening. Uh, Gaia Marcus, the head of National Data Strategy at DCMS, will be talking to us about the Framework National Data Strategy that was published today. Hello, Gaia. Can you hear Hello. me? Hello. Hello. I can. Can you hear me? So, um, so quiet day for you then today. Oh yes, very quiet day for me. Uh, and I've had an incredibly restful night's sleep. 
and I'm really excited to be here on what not what is not kind of the umpteenth hour of work today. So no, but thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful timing as it turned out. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, over to you. Fabulous. Hello, everyone. So, hi, I'm Guy Marcus. I'm National Data Strategy at DCMS. As you may well know, earlier this morning, the Secretary of State for DCMS announced that we're publishing a new national data strategy. He called it an ambitious pro-growth and pro-innovation declaration of intent for the use of data in the UK. So what does that actually mean? I'm delighted to be here today to be able to cover the background to the national data strategy, uh, to maybe discuss a bit why we need a national data strategy, the strategy itself, and steps including consultation, and some questions for you before we open to questions from me. So I think the first thing to ask is, how have we come here? Delivering a national data strategy is a long-standing government commitment. And many of you in the room have been part of this journey, some of you for longer than me. Indeed, Gavin's maps of data in government were actually quite useful when I was all but a job application. Um, as you know, there have been some stops and starts, and I'm sure I've already seen some questions on this. But in June 2019, the team launched a call for evidence that received over 100 responses alongside stakeholder engagement with over 250 organisations. And actually, evidence and stakeholder engagement has been core to the development of the strategy to date and will continue to be core to its development as we very much see ourselves as being in the middle of a conversation. To date, we've engaged with hundreds of policy officials across government and over 250 external organisations hosting over 20 roundtables and one ill-fated public event uh, that then fell foul of the pre-election period in carrying out any other. So I think the question of why a strategy is interesting, and I think there's a big difference in understandings of strategy. So my background is more data strategy, as I'd call it, business as usual, a business as usual and data strategy. And I think there's a big difference between that, what we expect of a government strategy and what we expect in grand strategy. As the slide lays out, as a government data strategy, the national data strategy sets Her Majesty Government's ambition, brings the narrative into one place, proposes a framework for policy development that we're consulting on, and sets out through the missions and associated actions a commitment to action, which will again be reinforced as we come back to you with the response to the consultation and the next steps. And I think this was needed. There have been many bites of the apple, many strategies, many policies and roadmaps. And we're still in this conversation, but I do think there's value in proposing a unifying structure and rationale. Now, as a business as usual data strategy, I can think we can think of this as a start of a 10. Um, when we're thinking about business as usual data strategy, I think we're really thinking about the government data strategy implicit in the NDS. And I think through the third mission in the national data strategy, we set out that government is going to transform its use of data. We know this is something that we need to be doing. We, we have had the National Audit Office report and we are showing the beginning of the concrete steps to be reinforced in the months and years to come that we're taking to achieve government's transformation of its use of data. And we've set out five areas of ambition for the government use of data and really laid out some concrete steps, including the commitment to have a CDO as well as a Chief Digital Officer and some areas of focus that we'll be using with, for example, spend controls to think about how we think about standards in government. But what about strategy qua strategy? I think what we have here is, and again, this is the beginning of a conversation or indeed halfway through. So we have the why, the opportunities. I will not spend a lot of time talking to data people about the opportunities. We have the what, the blockers and enablers that we've identified in the pillars. And then we have the beginning of the how, not just the activities themselves, 
but the missions as the unifying logic of what is prioritised. So what does that look like? Um, differently from the document, I'm going to start from the bottom up. So the pillars are the result of the evidence that we've collected, stakeholder engagement and analysis to date. And we've essentially identified four core pillars of better data use that need addressing. One is we need to get the basics right. We need data to be collected, stored and deleted, frankly, in standardised ways that can work across modern, future-proof systems. We need that data to be of sufficient quality. Secondly, the data is fit for purpose. We need to ensure that people have the skills they need for a data-driven economy and data-rich lives. And that can be from really foundational data skills that just allow you to, to function, let's say, through to some incredibly specialised data skills that maybe only 300 people in the whole of the UK need. Thirdly, if we have the data, we can use the data. We, we must ensure that the data is accessed appropriately. We need to do more to make that data available through better coordination and sharing across the public, private and third sectors, as well as internationally. As someone who's moved around between sectors and between areas in my career, I'm really keen that the value often is at the intersection of things. And we can't just think about government data or private data, private sector data, we need to think about how we utilise those across the piece. Finally, as we drive innovation research, we need data used to be responsible and underpinned by trust. That means collecting, storing, using and deleting data in a way that's lawful, secure, fair, ethical, sustainable and accountable. We have a well-respected data regime and we are well known for our pragmatic approach to regulation. And I think we can build on government initiatives such as the data ethics framework as we move to ensure that data is used in a way that is responsible. Now, the pillars that we've identified are key to unlocking the power of data for the UK. But to the rise to the challenge, we've identified five missions that we must prioritise now. These are unlocking the value of data across the economy, ensuring that government understands where it should and where it shouldn't intervene to ensure that data is available as is appropriate in the wider economy. It means securing a pro-growth and trusted data regime um, that has the right balance between allowing for growth, ensuring that individuals are, understand how their data are used and comfortable with that use, we must ensure that government's use of data is transformed to drive efficiency and improve public services, for example, through building common data standards and interoperable infrastructure, building world-class skills and leadership, and increasing understanding of the benefits of data in conversation with the public. Fourth, as we increase our reliance on data, we must also ensure the security and resilience of the infrastructure on which data relies on. And I'm really excited that this is the first step of showing that the infrastructure the data relies on is a vital national asset and government must understand how best to protect it from both established and new and emerging risks. And lastly, we must ooh, we must recognise and make the most of the vital role that data plays internationally. The UK should be a global champion of data use and will promote best practice both domestically and internationally to ensure data can be used to its full potential. So why? The strategy identifies five key areas of opportunity. I'll let you guess which pictures which. We think that, and this is very much underpinned by what we've done with the Government Office for Science, who released their report today. And with them, we've identified five concrete and significant opportunities for data to positively transform the UK. Boosting productivity and change, supporting new businesses and jobs to help people like me that are now in jobs they never even heard of when they're at university. To increase the speed, efficiency and scope of scientific research, as we've seen with the recent incredibly accelerated coronavirus vaccine trials. We're driving better delivery of policy and public services and incredibly close to my heart, asking how we use data to create a fairer society for us all. Um, as I think some of you will know, I have a long history in looking at how we use data to understand and respond to homelessness more effectively. And I think there's so much value when 
the third sector especially is enabled to use data between organizations to really understand and get under the skin of problems. So what's next? This is not the end of the journey. We're keen for stakeholders to contribute and to really you know, scrutinize what we're doing and contribute to the missions, the areas of focus and our policy proposals. The National Data Strategy can now be found online and the consultation period will be open for 12 weeks, closing just shy of midnight on the 2nd of December. Now, before I hand over to you, I have two key questions. There are about 19, I think, in the consultation. But I thought that to really um, harness the conversation, I wanted to ask, have we identified the right priorities for the National Data Strategy? And are there any other areas that you think the government should explore in further depth? And I'm guessing that's my time. So thank you. Gaia, thank you very much indeed. Um, you are now just eight minutes away from a very well-earned drink at the end of a very long day. Um, just a reminder to everybody watching, if you do want to put questions to Gaia, you can do it via Twitter using hashtag IFGDataBytes, using the YouTube chat, or by using Slido, which is bit.ly slash SlidoDB13. Um, so, Guy, thank you very much. And I think, as you sort of said at the beginning of your presentation, there are already quite a few questions on Slido uh, related to the National Data Strategy. So I will start with um, one of those. Um, again, Anonymous, who's been really busy asking questions this evening. Why did DCMS issue the data strategy today? They thought policy was now owned by Cabinet Office. And why has it taken so long um, to come out with the framework? I believe those are two questions. Um, so indeed. I'll take the second first. So, look, um, the strategy was announced in June 2018. A responsible civil service very much has to prioritise its resources where there is the most need. As you will know, a lot has happened in the past two years and there have been some pauses related to EU exit, uh, some pauses related, not really a pause, but we had to reprioritise our activity given the pre-election period. And most recently, I had to move timescales around. We're hoping to come to you a bit sooner this year, given the need to reprioritise some of our uh, resourcing on COVID-19. On the other hand, I think actually the fact that we have issued the strategy in the current climate speaks to the real importance of the strategy of data from the real top. So um, I've been here two years. I think many people warned me it would take a lot longer. Actually, one year in 11 months. Um, now, in terms of the cab office, so DCMS maintains policy responsibility for data policy for the economy and society, data protection policy, the Data Protection Act, data ethics and the sponsorship of the CDAI and very much data ethics for the economy. And we've maintained responsibility for the national data strategy. We're working in close cabinet off in close partnership with the cabinet office and to be honest, many others across government. And we're currently setting up revised governance structures to ensure that all initiatives relating to government use of data take account of the wider national policy that's set by DCMS. And indeed, you won't be surprised to hear that I think one of the last edits we had to a cabinet office action was at just after midnight when a colleague realised we'd misassigned one of their actions. So very much a close partnership and very much the agenda is being set by DCMS. Excellent, thanks. Um, two related questions, both around algorithms. Um, Anonymous, again, asks, based on your pillars for better data use, could you assess the A-level algorithms approach against uh, those pillars? And let me just scroll down and find the other algorithm question. Joys of Slido. It was a very good question on algorithms. I'll find it in a second. Um, I mean, I think the first I'll, question. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go for that. Yeah. I think the first question was quite tongue in cheek. Um, I can't comment on um, algorithms used by Ofqual. 
Um, and I think we can maybe agree that it possibly fell down on the responsible use of data side, but that's very much me speaking as myself. Um, I wouldn't be comfortable commenting any further. Sure, no problem. Um, we've got another question, uh, which is, how does DCMS see the national data strategy and the forthcoming digital strategy fitting together? What's being treated separately? What's the overlap? And I suppose there's a, there's a broader question there as well about how you see this work fitting into other things across government. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, as you can probably imagine, the first version of the data strategy was just a strategy for everything. Uh, which isn't deliverable. So we've had to very much really pull back to what is about data. And that's why we've got this focus on the pillars of, is the data in a good format? Do people still use that data? Is it appropriately shared or is it appropriately accessible? And then is that use responsible? So we're really pairing it back to the kind of things you actually expect to see in a big data strategy partner. Now, in terms of the overlap between the national data strategy and the digital strategy, the digital strategy ties together a number of digital growth policies that include the national data strategy. And so anything where the digital strategy covers data, we very much are setting the agenda there because we basically dock in. And the work in both of these areas will complement each other. Uh, whereas we're very squarely responsible for looking at how we unlock the power of data across government and the wider economy whilst building trust in its use. Very closely, I think, is the actual answer people are looking for. Excellent. Um, a question now from Owen Baswava. Uh, where does reuse of public sector information fit into the national data strategy? Will the policy approach on reuse rights change once the UK leaves the EU or leaves the transition period? I would have to pass over to colleagues in the CAB office that are covering that policy area specifically. My understanding is there's no particular intention to change the reuse of public data. Um, as I think outlined in the strategy, we are committed to the open data agenda more broadly and the team has recently moved over to the cabin office and is in the process of policy development. Um, they know Owen quite well, so I'm sure they can be in touch. Excellent. Uh, we've got about three minutes left, so please do keep your questions coming. There are plenty uh, for us to get through. I found the algorithms one, um, which might allow you to talk a bit about the sort of data ethics that you mentioned, uh, which is how will um, HM government ensure that any data used within algorithms does not reinforce any embedded bias? I mean, that's, I think that's an incredibly good question. And it's something that's front and centre strategy um, in the fifth opportunity and also in a section on responsible data and the pillars. Um, that's an ongoing policy area, and I think it's something where we are really keen to work with stakeholders and experts to ensure that we're moving in the right direction. Um, there is a policy team in Cabinet Office that's um, responsible for the question of bias ethics within um, government and has a, for example, a data ethics framework on that. Into the wider economy, that's policy responsibility within DCMS. And I think we actually have a question that within the consultation or not least, it's something we'd be interested in input. Um, we're, as you probably imagine, on the early side in policy developments. I wouldn't be able to comment further beyond something that's very much on our radar. And it's something that we've set out in the actions. It's something that we are um, investigating and coming up with policy proposals for. Great, thanks. Um, two minutes left, so do keep your questions coming. Um, we've got a sort of, there's a, there's a lot about the sort of international facing side of things um, in the strategy. And anonymous has asked, what data flows to where? And um, they say that there's sort of some difference between data expertise flowing internationally and data flowing internationally. So I wonder if you can say any more about some of those international data flows. I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because it's it's basically everything we're doing. We're only here because data is currently 
flowing internationally. Um, international data flows will go from data about people, data about things. Um, they are the basis for trade. They are the basis for keeping us safe. If you think about, um, you know, um, sort of police, you know, police data. Essentially, there's a better word for it. Apologies, it's been a long day. Um, so I think it would almost be harder to. I think it would almost be easier to answer the question of which data does not flow internationally, unless I've misunderstood the question. Great. I think we've got one minute left, so I'm going to go with one final question. Um, so Sam Smith asks, what would you most like to have got into the strategy that didn't make it for whatever reason? <laughs> I think that might be a conversation for a glass of wine, really. Um, I'm really looking for actually, so serious answer. I'm really looking forward to receiving consultation responses, actually. I'm sure there's a lot that's not in there that could be in there. Um, I won't I won't lift the veil on internal conversations, but I'm really keen to have this strategy um, just tested with stakeholders in the public. I'm really proud of it. I think there's been an immense amount of work that's been into it, but nothing's perfect. And indeed, as we say sometimes, perfect is the enemy of the good, frankly. Um, so, yeah, I think I'll let stakeholders tell me what's missing. Excellent. Well, that brings us pretty much perfectly to time. Gaia, thank you very much indeed. And um, good luck with the consultation. So um, all that's now between everybody and a glass of wine or a bottle of beer or whatever you would choose to have, although, of course, you could have been drinking it all the way through the event, um, is me just giving a few final uh, notices. But I'm going to do first just share my screen so you can see the details of the links that you will need to join us for virtual drinks. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, we are always looking for sponsors and speakers uh, to continue the Data Byte series. So please do get in touch with me if you are interested in sponsoring or speaking. Uh, I mentioned that we've got lots of other events coming up at the Institute for Government um, over the next few weeks, inclu including at our virtual uh, party conference fringe programmes, a number that touch on digital and data. So please do check, up, check out our website and sign up to our newsletter for more details on that. Um, as I said, please do join us uh, for some virtual drinks. Uh, you can do so a few minutes after this has ended by going to bit.ly slash db13drinks and using the password ifgdb13. Those are case sensitive. So all that remains uh, for me to say um, are some thank yous. Um, first of all, thank you to all of you for um, coming virtually uh, and for asking some brilliant questions tonight. We really couldn't keep the series going without uh, your support. A huge thank you to Tableau, uh, not only for speaking in the guise of Phil, but also for helping uh, tonight's event to go ahead through sponsoring it. And a final thank you. Please do join me in a huge virtual round of applause for our fantastic speakers this evening. It's been one of the best uh, Data Bytes events we've had. So um, thank you very much to them. Thank you very much to you. And hopefully see you in October or at Virtual Drinks. <laughs>